At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is The Roger Stone Show here on WABC Radio. WABC, making AM radio great again. My guest now is Barry Habib. He is the chief executive order of MBS Highway, and is without any question perhaps the most undisputed expert on the mortgage and housing markets in the United States. He's also a shrewd observer of the American economy, and in the brief time that I have known him, I must say, every one of his economic predictions has come absolutely true. Uh, he's a motivational speaker. He's also a very, very successful uh, Broadway theatrical uh, producer, uh, and he joins us now on The Roger Stone Show. Barry, welcome. Well, you're way too kind, Roger, and it's an honor to be with you. So, uh, you know, I think it was uh, in 1992 that James Carville, the famous Democratic political strategist, said, it's the economy, stupid, in terms of the impact on a presidential election. Uh, and there's no doubt whatsoever that the 2024 presidential election is going to be greatly impacted uh, by the economy, in addition, of course, to other war and peace issues. Uh, and therefore, uh, it is within that framework that I have uh, my questions for you today. Uh, let's start with this one. Uh, what do you think the impact of the trillions of dollars of stimulus money that's been pumped into the market by the Biden administration when it comes to uh, 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 overall, uh, has been on the uh, on the single-family home prices uh, in the current market. Well, there's no doubt there's a lot of uh, different factors influencing home values. The predominant one is a lack of supply and overwhelming demand. Now, that overwhelming demand has been helped by Fed actions to reduce interest rates, but also certainly by the stimulus that came into play. The 1.9 trillion Biden budget buster stimulus plan uh, is still trickling through. And then certainly the what, what was called you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, that definitely added to inflation. And when you do have inflation, one of the things that does inflate is home values. Now, listen, there's, there's a good and bad side of it, right? If you, if you own a home, you don't mind seeing that. But certainly if you're trying to purchase a home, or move up, it does create some headwinds. So with companies like BlackRock and others buying up tremendous swaths of single family homes across the country, 
try to turn them into rental properties. Do you see this trend by corporate America as a danger to citizens who desire to become homeowners themselves? Well, you know, here's the thing. I think BlackRock is trying to fill a void right now. And there's clearly a need for more space for renters, which is why we've seen that. However, given that, I think that's mostly in the rearview mirror, Roger, because we had seen rents going up astoundingly at 18% a year for new rentals, meaning it's like your first time, and then renewal rents were going up close to 15% a year. And that's what drove a lot of the inflation numbers. But those numbers have kind of abated significantly. When you blend all rate rental rates together on a year-over-year basis, they've come way down to just 3.4%, and they seem to be heading lower. Part of this is added, added supply coming on the market from builders, and part of it is exactly what you said by companies like BlackRock and others purchasing properties, converting them to rentals because there is a need for that. Now, remember that real estate's local and rental demand's local. I'm giving you these numbers nationwide. So certainly in certain areas, there's going to be a greater demand for rental and, and filling that void is still going to be something that has to be done. You know, Chase Wilson, who's a political consultant that I often work with, really has tagged the lack of supply and availability of affordable housing as a sleeper issue, particularly, particularly among younger voters in the country, an issue that Robert Kennedy has talked about some, an issue I think President Trump needs to talk about. Uh, I, I really think that this is uh, going to have the capacity, uh, the candidate who says something in this area, constructive, is going to have the capacity to win millions of voters. Overall, where do you see home prices going in the next 18 months? Well, first of all, I think that you've, you've given great insight, and I just want to underscore what you said, because I think you've nailed it, as you usually do. But here's the thing. Now, Joe Biden was really beating the drum on the fact that what we need is we need to help first-time home buyers. We need to give them grants. We need to give them $25,000. What do you want them to do? But this is where his either lack of of understanding or personal desires being put above what's good for the country comes into play because that would exacerbate the problem. Once again, Roger, we have too many buyers and not enough inventory. How do you solve the problem? You don't solve the problem by juicing the buyers. That would only exacerbate it and drive prices much higher. This was experimented by President Obama in 2010, and it was an enormous failure. It artificially lifted home values for a period of time, and then they came crashing down below where they were. So what President Obama did was he actually made people influenced to purchase homes because of the tax credit that they were getting. They said, oh, I'm getting a great deal, but they wound up paying significantly higher prices. And once the tax credit ended in April of that year, prices without that tax credit influence, all he did was bring demand forward. And with that void, prices came tumbling down. So those poor people that purchased a home thinking that, oh, I was getting a great deal, they were left holding the bag. And what President Biden has been trying to do is repeat that same playbook, which is going to only create an exacerbation of our current problem and disaster. Now, it might sound good if you're a voter that, hey, look, he's going to give me this, but it is not a wise decision. And before I talk about where we see the housing market, just one more point, please, on this, is that when we take a look at what 
could solve the problem, and it's something that most politicians won't touch, is that you have to help builders because what's happened is the cost to construct lower price homes is if, if there's not an impetus to do that, I'm not I'm not incented to build a lower price home. I can make much more money on a higher priced home, but the demand is needed on the lower priced environment. So what I would hope that someone would take a look at is and say, how do we address this problem? Can we if we're going to throw money at this, let's throw money at subsidizing the construction and rewarding and the incentive to make it affordable for builders to construct lower priced homes and now let people have the dream of home ownership at a better level. Okay, where's home values gone? So I apologize for that. So I'm going to answer the question that you um, you had asked me and, the, and home values are going to continue higher. Now, many people thought I was crazy last year when everyone was predicting a crash and people are saying prices are going to drop 20%. It's Roger, the housing market is different. People don't really understand the housing market. It's a different animal. We had forecasted 5.5% appreciation last year, and everybody thought we were nuts. It came in at 6%. So not quite a bullseye, but pretty darn close. Our forecast for this year is 5.8% appreciation. And again, everybody thought we were kind of you know off our rocker, but here we are. And from the beginning of the year in 2023 to halfway through the year, we've already seen about 3 to 4% price appreciation. So we're probably going to continue to see that. There's no crash coming. It's it's a basic issue of supply and demand. Too many home, too many buyers, not enough homes. If you're just tuning in, folks, this is WABC Radio, and this is The Roger Stone Show. And we're talking to Barry Habib, Chief Executive Officer of MBS Highway and widely recognized as probably the leading authority on mortgages and housing in the United States. You know, Barry, I must tell you, you would never, ever make it in politics. You know why? You have this tremendous tendency to actually answer the question which you were asked. <laughs> let, let me ask you. Thanks, Roger. Uh, let, let me ask you this. Are these loans uh, known as Nina loans, no income, no asset loans, growing again in popularity uh, since it will generate increased revenues for the financial industry in the short run? You know, Roger, there's really not an appetite for those, and we're not seeing those occur. They were very prevalent in 2003, 2004, and that's when they started to become widely used. And basically what you could do is you could buy a home without verifying your income, without verifying your assets, without even if you had a job with truly marginal credit, a credit score of 580 would pass. And if, if you don't know on a relative basis, the average score of people in the United States today is about 660, 670. And for people getting mortgage today, it's about 720. So 580 is dramatically below what would be deemed good credit. So they were approving that and no skin in the game, Roger. People were able to purchase homes with nothing down. So with no verification mechanisms, what was going on was people were buying homes completely speculatively. No intention to live there, no intention to rent it. Just, I'm going to buy this home in this hot housing market. And it was almost like tulip mania. You buy it and you're dumping it to the next sucker, right? So that happened and home prices did continue to go up through 2004, 2005. But in 2006, as everybody jumped on this bandwagon, the music stopped. Builders built more homes than they ever had in our history, 2 million homes. And then what was also interesting was it was like a perfect storm because in 2006, demand for housing dropped 
precipitously. And there was a reason for that. You see, the median age of a first-time home buyer is 33 years old. In 2006, there was a dearth of 33-year-olds, and there's a reason for that. It's because in 1973, 33 years earlier, birth rates dropped due to Roe v. Wade. So as Roe v. Wade came to be in 1973, much fewer births by like a million. And as a result, in 2006, at the prime age of buying a home, there were a million fewer buyers at the same time that builders built a half a million more homes than they ever built at the same time. So it was a house of cards that collapsed under this weight. Now, we don't have anything like that today, and there is not an appetite for those types of NINA loans that you mentioned. So lenders are standing clear of those. There isn't an appetite in the secondary market for them. So that's good news. We're not seeing those type of speculative loans. So to sum this up, would be fair to say you do not see a repeat of the trend that ended up in the market crash of 2009, where borrowers were not required to show income or assets in order to qualify for loans. You're 100% right. I do see that. So I see three basic differences. One is the one that you just perfectly articulated, is that there is not going to be those type of easy money loans, which then deteriorate the quality of credit and could cause borrowers to default easily. So that's not, not there anymore. The second is, as I mentioned, the demographic situation. 2007, 2008, you had much too much building, not enough demand. We have the opposite here today. And then perhaps underscoring it all is the third point. Back in 2007, available inventory to purchase was 4 million homes. Today, it's a little over a million. The latest data shows a million and 80,000 homes. So roughly 3 million fewer homes, but at the same time since 2007, our population has grown by over 30 million. So think about 30 million more people fighting over 3 million fewer homes. You would see that that's why we're having upside pressure. So when I saw you several months ago in Palm Beach, uh, you told me that Republicans should not count on the inflation rate uh, as an issue. Uh, You made an eerily accurate prediction about where the inflation numbers would go. But in the same conversation, you told me that you thought that the current administration and the Fed were really jiggering the employment numbers. Uh, Talk to us about that. So thanks, Roger. That's very kind of you to mention. Yeah, we had felt strongly that while everybody was talking about his inflation as being a problem, the way that we have analyzed the numbers, um, we felt that we'd be around 3 percent with the release of the July 12th CPI. And I believe you and I were chatting back in the month of May. So we thought it'd be around the corner when inflation was about 5 percent. So it seemed like a pretty big drop. Sure enough, we just got the most recent report, and it was 3% indeed. But when we talk about inflation, I think most of the gains are now in the rearview mirror. At this point, we will make some progress, but it's going to be bumpy. I do think that next month, when we get the release for inflation numbers in, in the second week of August, that will give the numbers for July, we're not going to make hardly any progress at all. We'll make very small progress. And then you're going to have everybody come out and say, oh, inflation's stubborn. It's going to come back like the 70s. That is, don't buy that narrative. It is not true. They just don't understand how the numbers work. It is based upon comparisons from the previous year. where We had a really, really low print in July of 2022. We'll get over that hump, and we will continue to make 
progress, but not as quick as we've made. It'll be slow and steady. But the Fed is really focused on the core rate of inflation. The core rate of inflation strips out food prices and energy prices. And this is what the Fed wants to wants to look at. Now, look, you can argue and say, well, we all experience pressure from food prices and energy prices. Shouldn't we look at that number? But we don't, you know, we, here's the rules, whether we agree with them or not, this is what the Fed wants. And the Fed says, we are going to continue to hike rates. This is the words of Jerome Powell, who, by the way, as you, as you know, he is not an economist. He is a lawyer. You know, is it a good idea to have a lawyer running the economy? I don't know. It's probably not a good idea to have someone who's an economist representing you as a lawyer. So, you know, but be it what it may, now you have this lawyer who is telling us that he is going to continue to tighten the noose on the economy until we see 2% core PCE, which is the personal consumption expenditures. That's the reading. Now, Roger, I've done the math on this. We can't get there for another year. We can't. And we'd be lucky if we do. Now, the Fed's going to hike this week on the 26th coming up. So on the 26th, you're going to get a Fed rate hike of a quarter percent. They want to do at least one more is what all of the Fed members are telling us. They continue to do this. It strangles the economy. It makes the banking situation an exacerbation because deposits are fleeing. They're going into money markets. It makes the cost of credit much more expensive, and we run on credit. So this is a fatal flaw. And the reason why they're doing this is because they're fixated on this reading. But it will take time for this reading to come down. And the main reason is because the data that they are so dependent on, and that's their words, data dependent, it lags. If you look at real-time readings, anyone can go to something called Trueflation. It's spelled like it sounds. Trueflation.com. It fluctuates every day, but I believe the most recent reading was around 2.25%, right where the Fed wants it. But that's a real-time reading that takes 10 million data points as opposed to the 80,000 the Fed looks at, which lags. So real-time, we're already there. But the Fed continues to look out the rearview mirror instead of looking through the windshield. And this is why they caused boom and bust cycles. Roger, they did the same thing in 2021. You remember Janet Yellen, who was a horrible Fed chair. And all she is now as Treasury Secretary is a salesperson for the, for the president. And what she does is she gets out there and says, we got to go big. We got to we gotta go big. Why? Because they're trying to pump up the economy, right? But at what cost? The cost of our future. And so what they did is they make this fatal mistake. They keep interest rates too low too long. They do all this excessive quantitative easing, and they created all the inflation we have. They've created the bank failures. And now the Fed panic that they screwed up is trying to reverse it, but they're making the same fatal error in reverse. They're looking at lagging information. When they kept rates too low too long, they were looking at lagging instead of current information. Current information on rents, they were going up at 8% a year. The lagging information showed them going up at 2% a year. So therefore, they said, oh, we've got so much time. Now, you asked about the job numbers. Well, the job numbers, boy, it's a head scratcher. It's a head scratcher in a couple of different ways. You know, back in February, just four days before the State of the Union address, we get a jobs report. Now, Roger, I've just continued to scratch my head on this, but buried in the report, you have to really dig, was something called population control effect. That sounds like it should be in a sci-fi movie. And what it did was it artificially added 810,000 jobs. 
That's a big difference. That caused the unemployment rate to drop rather significantly. Now, were there 810,000 jobs created? They were, but they were created in the first quarter of 2022, but we were given those numbers in February of 2023. Why? I don't know. And, you know, listen, is, is it a coincidence that was four days before the presidential address the State of the Union? Maybe, maybe not. Now, but every one of these jobs reports, you have to dig deep. The jobs numbers are not as strong. For example, in the last jobs number, of all the jobs created, and there was a little over 200,000 of them, 450,000 were part-time jobs. So if you net that out, that means we lost about 200,000 full-time jobs. This does not smell like a strong labor market to me if people are taking part-time and they can't get full-time jobs and we're losing full-time jobs. <clears throat> Very well said. Uh, this is why uh, I heed your advice when it comes to the economy. Now, you are not only uh, a uh, and an expert on the mortgage and housing market, but you have also produced one of the longest running, one of the most successful shows, both on Broadway and off Broadway, Rock of Ages. Uh, how would you say your experience in the mortgage industry contributed to your role uh, as a Broadway producer? Well, you know, Roger, I, I grew up like really poor. You know, my parents are immigrants. I'm first generation born here. And, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I did as a kid, I used to sell stereo equipment out of the trunk of my car. So there's a lot of very valuable lessons that you learn when you when you kind of just hustle and you learn by trial and error. And there's, there's a lot of lessons that you learn in business. You know, one of, one, of the, one of the first things I learned as a kid selling stereos out of the trunk of my car is when something went wrong with as electronic equipment typically does, you know, here I am, this young kid, but I would give people my phone number and they would never expect that I would drive back out and replace or fix what it was. But I always did. And, you know, when you do that, um, people all of a sudden, they almost feel obligated to either buy more stuff from you or to uh, or, or to, to refer others to you because, you know, it's just that law of reciprocity. So one of the early lessons I learned is when something goes wrong, it doesn't mean it's bad. If you handle it correctly, you could actually turn any chaotic situation or wrong situation into either a lesson or some sort of an opportunity. And that's what I tried to do. That's what I tried to do in my career in the mortgage business. You know, with Rock of Ages, I, I, I try to observe things. So I would observe people coming into the theater and they would come in a little late. They'd pay $15, excuse me, $15 for an alcoholic beverage. And then the lights would come on. They'd have to get in their seat. And you weren't allowed to take your drinks in the seat. So they had to guzzle it down. Or I'm already giving them an unpleasurable experience that now I have to win them back over. So why not allow drinking in the seats? But, you know, unions and this and that. I fought and I was the very first show in Broadway history I negotiated to allow drinking in the seats. We actually had shot girls coming around so people could have a good time. And now they all do it. Now they all do it. So making observations. You know, Roger, one of the things that I did was I had a – a medical imaging company in a business that I built and, and sold it. But in that business, what I noticed was people who would go for scans, they would feel anxiety afterwards and waiting for results. And, you know, unless you have your doctor's cell phone number, which few people do, your mind plays, plays the worst part of it and where you think the worst. So why make people do that? So when I opened these medical imaging centers, I thought we were innovative. We had a radiologist right there that would sit you down, read you what happened right afterwards, right after you got dressed, 
you knew if it was good news and you could take a breath, or if it wasn't good news, you had a plan of action. So these are just some of the lessons that I, I learned, Roger. And there's many of them. I put a ton of them in my book, Money in the Streets, um, which is which is what, what immigrants hear when they come to the U.S., right? Oh, my gosh, America is such a rich country. There's money in the streets. And you know, my mom used to tell me when I was a little boy, says, you believe it? We thought there was money in the streets. And she would laugh, but it was sad. But before she passed away, Roger, as I learned some of these things and learned that there's opportunity everywhere, I said, you know, Mom, you were right. There really is money in the streets. You just need to be able to see it, pick it up, and do good with it. Well, you know, I've often said uh, that politics was show business for ugly people. Uh, how would you say uh, you, have a, you have experienced or, or observed parallels between the worlds of finance uh, and the world of the theater? You know, I, I had a rude awakening when I got into both doing movies, actually were, it was in several movies, and difference between the world of finance. Um, I hate to say this, but, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's, there's less trust that, that happens in the entertainment field. It's just it, people just for some reason... There's more, it's more prevalent, not everyone certainly, it's much more prevalent for people to not do what they say they were going to do. And being accustomed to doing business where, you know, with, with the vast majority of people I do business with, you could shake hands, you could trust them, they could be integrous most of the time. I had a rude awakening to find out that that's just, that's just not the way it's done for the most part, from my personal experience in the entertainment world. And that was a big disappointment and, uh, and, and you know, it was a hard lesson to learn. Uh, a tougher question, perhaps. How do you see artificial intelligence, AI, playing out in terms of the marketing of mortgage loans to home buyers? And will it, in your opinion, require additional regulation from the feds? I think that this is going to evolve in ways that we probably we probably can't even see. You know, there's a lot that's beyond the headlights right now that uh, that we don't know. AI could be a good tool. It could be dangerous. It could be something that uh, that becomes too relied on for kids, so they lose some creativity in trying to develop and create things. It uh, it also, as AI develops and gets smarter, um, it could replace a lot of things. So it could be an, a wonderful innovation, but there's definitely a dark and ugly side. You know, in any innovation like this, you know, whether it be fire or whether it be electricity, I mean, you know, when you, when you talk about things like, like the, when the Internet came about, right? Now, the Internet is amazing. It's wonderful. We all rely upon it. But it also lent itself to things like you know, people getting scammed and duped. And, you know, even with cryptocurrency, it could be great, but it can also have an ugly side. So I see the same thing with AI. Specific to the mortgage environment, uh, I, I, I feel as if what's really important in a mortgage is that for most people, it's the largest financial transaction that they make. And if people understand that the advice that you get from a competent mortgage professional, not an order taker, but a competent mortgage professional can do more things than AI can do, can do more things than any calculator could do, because there's a human side to this that I think needs to be expressed with a mortgage. Um, and, and, it, and it can it touches so many things, your future wealth creation, your taxes, your retirement, your cash flow. 
that it's important to have a competent mortgage advisor as opposed to AI or an order taker or something like that. You, you need People shouldn't shop for the lowest rate and not be the only thing. You want to get a great rate, but you want to deal with somebody who really understands the financial markets and how it affects you. I was with uh, Patrick Ben David the other day, and he told me that you were, without any question, one of the smartest people he knows in the entire country. Uh, when it came to any economic oh my gosh. matter, he was uh, very highly complimentary, and he was very excited for me that you were going to join us today on the Roger Stone Show. So, Barry Habib, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, clearly, uh, I think uh, very... Uh, uh, shall I say, revelatory uh, and telling people where the mortgage and housing industry is going in the country and how it might impact the next election. Thank you so much, Barry, for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Roger, it is absolutely a privilege. God bless you and everything that you are doing. And a shout out to my dear friend and just just uh, an icon, Patrick Bet David, who is just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant innovator. Thank you so much. Folks, that was Barry Habib. Just to remind you, you're on WABC Radio. We are on the Roger Stone Show, of course, and you can listen to us by going to 770 on the AM dial. If you are on the uh, in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up, or if you're out of town, go to the WABCRadio.com uh, uh, website. Uh, I really suggest you get the WABC 77 radio app, uh, and then you won't miss any of this great programming. So right now, go on your cell phone, call a friend, call a family member, or send them a text and tell them to tune in if they live in the area or to go to the WABCradio.com website to listen to the balance of the Roger Stone Show. Joining us shortly is UFC welterweight champion Colby Covington, who's headed for a big, big fight, I think, in Madison Square Garden.